Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel, And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the after show. This is where we comment on the guest interviews in our regular podcast. And when we say comment, we do mean comment, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. Let's see where this one goes. I'm Erin Somerset Webb. This week, John Stepek, senior reporter at Bloomberg and author of the Daily Money Distilled newsletter, which if you haven't signed up to do so immediately, joins me to discuss my conversation with GMO co-founder Jeremy Grantham. Now, John, we have had a lot of feedback from this. Everyone loved it. Everyone loves to hear from Jeremy. He's very well known for his big market calls. And we talked about a lot of things in this course. I've been through the whole market. We've been through, you know, climate change. We've been through artificial intelligence. We've been through valuations. We've been through lots on the U.S. market, a little bit on other markets, etc. What did you think? Uh, I'm, I need to start by saying I am actually a massive fan of Jeremy Grant. Everyone's a massive um, fan. Actually, no, that's yeah. not entirely true. There are some people well, yeah. on, on Twitter <laughs> who aren't a massive fan of Jeremy Grant. I don't know why those people would feel like that. <laughs> well, I mean, I've spent years reading his stuff, and I'd probably, I, I would say I've probably he's the person that sticks more in my mind than pretty much any other. John, before you go much commentator. further, I just need to say something for the listeners just about you and Jeremy <laughs> yes. Grantham, okay? Confirmation bias. <laughs> Confirmation bias. I mean, I've never met him. Mm. It's, not, it's not like we're pals or anything mm. like that. Um, but, but he, he thinks what writer. you think. He thinks what you think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, mostly, uh, which is also interesting. But no, I mean, I thought it was interesting. It's mostly not anything particularly new because obviously you know read his stuff and we've spoken to him a lot and and i do have time for the people who think that he's overly bearish because he's often he was absolutely right whenever he called the turn in 2009 which he talked about in the the podcast um but equally you know i think it's fair to say that gmo as a as an asset manager has been negative to an extent that would have lost you money over the, you know relative to what you could have done basically if the default position is stick all your money in an s p 500 tracker 
then following kind of the, their advice about what long-term US returns were going to be like, um, it was seven years ago when it was basically saying they were going to be very small and that the US was uh, very expensive compared to other markets. You, you wouldn't have done as well as you could have if you just kept things very simple. And I think that's a reasonable criticism. Um, so at the same time, I just think that he's an interesting guy to listen to. And if you want to hear the bear case articulated, then someone like Jeremy, for example, articulates it far better than, say, Nouriel Rubini. It's not a criticism of Rubini, but it's just that, you know, it's not, it's, it's like Jeremy's got very specific and clear, you know, kind of mathematical, almost kind of reasons and kind of logical reasons. And also, I mean, I tend to think that he's probably just largely just early rather than wrong. Although, as we know, in markets, being too early is not it's really the same as to being be wrong. wrong, really. Aye. Um, and I suppose. If so you're, you're right, I'm biased. You're biased. <laughs> um, and of course, he, he uses uh, things like this Schiller PE, which we talked about in the podcast, as a valuation method. And we know that that works over the very, very long term, but as a short term signal, it's, it's pretty useless. doesn't really tell us uh, much about where markets are going to go unless we're looking at it over the really the super long term. The model that Ben Inker and I did 20 years ago, it's got a very high correlation. Explaining PE, it doesn't predict it. It just says, how do we get here? And it turns out the market is really a coincident indicator of comfort. What does it take to make a, a portfolio manager comfortable in an institution? And the answer is, as you suggest, steady inflation around 2%. It hates inflationary spikes and very high profit margins. And profit margins have been drifting down, and more than people realize, and inflation has been bouncing around, but it's part of the scenery now. And the model says a Schiller PE should be about 16.8, which is decently above average and doesn't sound ridiculously low. And that's because the profit margins are still decent. But what is it? Well, a few weeks ago, it was 29.30. So it was not responding in the normal way. I mean, I like it, by the way. I love the Schiller PE. I always look at the Schiller PE for uh, all markets, but it doesn't do us much good. Okay, I mean, I think, and you should, because it's, it's better than most, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's perfect. But but yeah, but one thing I was going to say is that it's interesting, if you if you look at what he says about VC, uh, so venture capital, and he's effectively saying that he still believes in US exceptionalism. So it's really interesting that, on the one hand, he's actually basically saying the US is a better economy and a better entrepreneurial environment than anywhere else in the world, which is hard to disagree with. But also, he's simultaneously sort of saying that that's not enough to justify the massive premium that the US trades at. And while I think I kind of agree with that, on the other hand, there is a part of me that's sort of starting to think, actually... Maybe the US is just better and it is just the place that's the most friendly home to money and money does go where it's best treated and perhaps the real story of the last 15 years, just a theory, I'm not sure I agree with it, is that actually um, America's the only place where kind of risk capital is treated, has, the treatment of risk capital has been either the same or only a bit worse than it has been deteriorating in the rest of the world. I mean, I mean, you look at the UK investment environment, you know, in the last 15 years, and I think it's fair to say that in terms of regulation and in terms of um, uh, political uh, approval, 
has deteriorated. You know, people are anti-capitalism in a way that uh, they weren't kind of 15, 20 years ago. Um, so, you know, I think that's an interesting almost contradiction there. And it certainly got me thinking. It is interesting because I mean, if, if you believe in American exceptionalism, and, and we did talk about venture capitalism quite a lot, and we talked about it the last time I interviewed him as well, and he said that an awful lot of his foundation's money in particular is in venture capital in one way or another for these very reasons, because the US treats entrepreneurs and innovation in a completely different way to the rest of us. But in the long run, it is amazing the quality of the people the American VC industry attracts. It's getting the best and the brightest who used to go into consulting or Goldman Sachs. And now that now they go into VC and startups and they come from all over the world. Uh, at least a quarter of the bosses of all the VC companies we talked to were not born in America. And what an achievement for the US. We have the great research universities, 15 of the 20, and most of the rest are in the UK. But the 15 great research universities are the bedrock for so many of these VC. And you add that to a, a societal attitude to taking risk in the US is simply much better than Europe. But, you know, a lot of money must have been lost there. But he still was extremely keen in this podcast to discuss that. And you might think, as you say, that if you believed that, then you'd also believe that uh, you know, the small number of stocks, the seven or eight stocks that have been leading the US market higher and higher, um, deserve their valuation. Yeah, and that's, I mean, to be fair, he, he did basically say that if you, although you shouldn't invest in the US because it's too expensive, if you do have to invest in the US, as far as I could see, he was saying the Magnificent Seven are the ones to invest in because they're well. He was saying, he was saying quality. Stocks. He was saying he was saying quality. Yeah. And if you look at the GMA work, it normally says you know that in an environment like this, you should buy stuff that is high quality and cheap. Although God knows what that is these days. <laughs> well, yeah, I cheap relative to what. I mean, I think the other interesting thing was, and this is another thing I've always found interesting about Grantham because um, one of the big things that like all the they talk about the kind of green energy stuff and one thing and obviously he's very committed to climate change and you know funds a lot of uh, research into it and things like that and one thing i remember is that one of the very few big calls that he made that was wrong um and where he very clearly went against his own understanding of bubbles was in 2011 at the peak of the commodities bubble he wrote a big report that basically said um you know, commodities are massively overpriced compared to their history and went through all of these reasons as to why they were expensive, but then sort of short-circuited the logical conclusion, which was to say it was in a bubble, and he said, but this is going to carry on because basically we're running out and China's going to kind of chew up all of the, um, you know, the resources. And of course that turned out to be incorrect. Um, and that's one thing that I found interesting because I, I felt that his own cognitive biases kind of uh, misled him to short circuit his process. Um, and that's why I, I guess I take some of the stuff he says on that front with a big pinch of salt because I think that he is kind of clearly has that, that's his thing. That's, um, that's where his cognitive bias kicks in. Um, although having said that, it was interesting to hear him acknowledge that if we want to get to net zero, then we're going to have to use a lot more fossil fuels in the meantime. 
It's interesting, isn't it? You talk about this that huge demand for resources up front. I think is something that that people are only just beginning to grasp. That in order to get to the clean side, we have to do a lot of really, really grubby stuff first. Really, really grubby stuff. And even in the long run, you need a lot of metals which are grubby in order to get to a green world. Sorry, guys. Sorry, you purists. <laughs> there is no way around that one. Yeah, there's no clean route to clean. No. Yeah. Um, and that's something you don't often hear the more, um, shall we say, ideological kind of like, you know, green people saying. It's like, yeah, you're know, not allowed most of them to think admit that, it. Yeah, most of them think lithium just comes out of a tap, right? Or they certainly see yeah, exactly. they do. Exactly. And uh, so, no, a lot of the things that we talked about around uh, climate change, around energy transition, et cetera, had him being extremely straightforward and pragmatic, just like uh, the interview we did with Ed Conway a while back, saying, you know, we have to get really, really grubby uh, before we can get anywhere near clean and accepting the amount of digging and mining that needs to be done. As a result, and you're right, we don't we don't hear that often. So that was that was interesting. Although we didn't then go on to talk about how one might invest as a result of that. And I know that GMO is still extremely keen on investing, in particular, in, in clean energy stocks, even though they've had a pretty horrible time. In fact, a, a really really horrible time. Um, but I suspect that they think that's probably a uh, a sector that people should still be invested in. Yeah, I mean, it's, I suppose one of those things, isn't it, where um it's it's like any new technology. Um, you you can't predict which one's going to be the market leader by the end of the by the time it's rolled out. It's the reason everyone bought Nvidia for the AI theme. Um, which that, that also came up, didn't it? It AI. did. It did. We covered everything, John. Everything. What did you say about? No, AI I mean, I thought, I thought it was a <laughs> it was a really good interview. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that kind of was somewhat glaring by its near absence was talk about the bond market mm, I think we took it as given I think it was an assumption for Jeremy and I that both of the the sovereign bond market bubble around the world is, is, is over that it's burst and that bond deals are staying yeah. high and that that is, that is why it's entirely possible. You did say at one point during the podcast, not a forecast but a comment, entirely possible mathematically that the US market could go down another 50% I'd say that, that's that, true, was, that was a reference about... to bond yields and to talk to, as you remember, we talked about the Russell 2000. The most vulnerable area would, in my opinion, is is uh, the Russell 2000. It's a, a good measure of where the vulnerabilities will be. The Russell 2000 often has no collective earnings at all. It has a very high density of zombies, companies that really can only pay their interest payments by issuing more debt. Um, it has never been higher than it is today. And they have a very high ratio, something like 40% don't have positive earnings. And they have record debt. They have never had this kind of debt. So they're vulnerable on the debt front, vulnerable on the financial front, and vulnerable on a broad economic front. And um, this is the interesting thing. The Russell 2000 is not up in real terms for the last year. It's not up over two years. And really surprising, it's not up over five years. It's actually down quite a bit over five years. So it is showing its vulnerability. 
and about yeah, how and what a forestry terrible place that is, like etc. Because the Russell yeah. 2000 is already down an awful lot, and so are some of the other things mm. that we talked about. But so I think that was that was really where a, a, an, an acceptance from both of us that we agreed on the bond market bubble being being over was there. Yeah, and then we talked. Um, we talked about uh, other markets, so we talked about Japan a little bit. Uh, well, the other cheap markets, we talked about Japan a little, and we talked about the UK a little, and these were both markets that he was interested in. Although, of course, there's always the point that you know, if the US market were to go down 50%, I repeat, that would not a forecast if it's just a mathematical comment. If it did, then everything else would go down a lot as well. Yeah, that is the tricky thing. Although, presumably, they just wouldn't go down as much. Well, it was um, crossed, eh? Well, it's that you know, you know what trade, happens in it? Japan, right? Um, yeah. You know, you always think things are fine <laughs> yeah. and it's cheap and it's quality and it's reached escape, escape velocity. There's a virtuous circle there, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, something happens and the Japanese market goes down more than other markets. So you can never take the stuff as a given. If it happens again this time, that's it. I'm just, I'm swearing off Japanese stocks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, listen, um, we did get, I got some pushback from a, because um, uh, we asked Jeremy at the end about gold and Bitcoin, and I think we would all have predicted that he would say gold, of course he did say gold was the least bad of the three. And actually, I think, John, at some point quite soon, we should do a whole podcast uh, on gold and uh, why to invest in gold and uh, when gold is good and when it isn't bad, because we mentioned it at the end, but we've never done a full one on it. Anyway, I got an email from one of our uh, listeners saying that, of course, you and I and Jeremy don't understand gold because we live in a stable country and we're not criminals. But if we lived in an unstable country and we were a drug dealer or a money launderer or something like that, then we would absolutely understand why Bitcoin is the currency of the future. Okay, so he says Bitcoin. So, because you said you said that we don't understand gold, and I was thinking, oh no, 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 we do understand gold. We don't understand understand Bitcoin. I've said before, right? Look, Bitcoin is a good way to move money across borders, um, where you can't sew gold coins into your, you know, coat pockets or whatever. I I actually agree with that. I, I think that that is the use case. That is very different to becoming, you know, th- like this uh, global currency system. I mean, this is what I don't... It, they remind me a lot, the crypto guys, of the hardcore kind of gold bugs uh, ahead of 2008, uh, where the idea wasn't just that gold was useful for X or Y, or as a portfolio insurance, it was the idea that gold was going to regain its one true place as the kind of natural money of the world that was going to take over the financial system. Could still happen, John. And Could still happen. Believe it, I, you know, I had an awful lot of sympathy with that view. Um, and it's one reason why I sort of sympathise with the Bitcoiners, because I recognise the idealism, but it's, it is idealism and it is deluded. Um, it's not going to happen. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with him. He's right. Bitcoin is a good way to move money across borders when you don't uh, when you either need to get the money out of the country because you're, you know, having to flee the country, or because you're a drug dealer. I do on the matter of that, on the matter of crime and global collapse and that sort of thing. I do want to mention that Jeremy and I did talk quite a bit after the end of the podcast. After we turned the recording off, rather irritatingly, we talked rather a lot about the things that really <laughs> concerned him. He's very worried about um, general toxic- toxicity across the world. He's much more worried about climate change, and I think even came across in in, in that conversation. 
and he's very, very worried about inequality. So when, when he looks at money and markets these days, he tends to see things through a slightly different lens than perhaps he did during the main part of his career. So that was quite an interesting conversation as well. That is, I mean, that's interesting. Um, my own view on inequality, I'm sure, kind of matches yours, which is that, uh, you know, the, the capitalist free market system of allocating resources gives you the best outcome. That doesn't mean that it's perfect, but it's a bit like democracy from that point of view. You know, it's the worst system except all of the rest of them. So anyone who kind of comes at this, particularly when they've got the soft cushion of, you know... Massive wealth. However many hundreds of millions. Yeah, massive wealth. Then I think they have to kind of just maybe count their blessings rather than deciding that it worked for them, but it's not going to work for everyone else. Mm, mm. Quite. Now, there is one uh, piece by GMO that people should go and wait and reread if they have access to it. If not, I'll try and put it up. So I'll, I might ask GMO if I can pop it up somewhere. Um, it is something that Jeremy wrote back in March 2009. And I know there's a, a lot of people out there who say, Jeremy, you know, always wrong. But in March 2009, um, Jeremy Grantham wrote a piece uh, encouraging everybody to have a battle plan for reinvestment and to get on with it. And now we're not anywhere near that point in markets at the moment, but it's quite a good little piece explaining how brave you have to be and how you have to overcome your terror when markets are genuinely cheap. Um, and you need to be ready to turn when all looks black, but just a subtle shade less black than the day before. Now, I don't know when that day will come in markets, but, you know, there's bound to be a day like it ahead. So we might try and uh, get that piece up somewhere for listeners to have a look at. Oh, definitely. That's a great piece. And very short as well. Very as as short. And that when it comes to when it comes to research like this, very short is very good. Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money, the after show. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset-Webb, alongside John Stefik. It was produced by Samasadi, additional editing by Blake Maples. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.